0: Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language.
1: This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on TAP we have Ghostbusters, starring Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, Sigourney Weaver, Harold Ramis, Rick Moranis, directed by Ivan Reitman. Welcome back to Rice Smile Films. Today we're opening up film two in the cask of the Summer Temple Hall of Fame. And a little bit off mic, uh, a second ago Matt and I were discussing the current slate of Summer Fair and yeah, yikes, it's kind of been a little all over the place to say the least.
0: I don't know what Rocket Man checked in at, but there's a whole lot of sub 45% out there. Yeah. And I can tell our lot of viewers that we went to go see Dark Phoenix this weekend. Yikes. How How was it? Just a great big middle finger to the entire <laughs> X-Men franchise. Yeah. It's... Uh, plays out as sort of like this very pedestrian drama with like maybe one or one and a half action bits in there. Which you could tell the X-Men is a drama. Essentially it is a drama. It's not sure. outcast. But it was rough, man.
1: Yikes. It was rough. What a send off for them. But excellent. Today we're going to be talking about Ghostbusters from 1984, kind of continuing on or talking about big budget tentpole summer films. And this is certainly one of the larger ones. And, you know, in my research for this, Matt, I, I did discover that in all of Columbia Pictures' films that they've ever done, this is their most lucrative property of all time. That's insane. So for what it made in the theater, rentals, merchandise... I mean, you slap this ghost on a T-shirt. I mean, there's 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 ten bucks a pop right there. Yeah, their most lucrative film that they've ever done, and that includes Spider-Man, Men in Black, all of that. That's crazy. That's pretty nuts, huh? So before we get started, we got we're actually opening up a new uh, whiskey today. This is the Grainstone Highland Single Malt Scotch Whiskey, and it's the Madeira Cask Finish. Uh, this is actually Total Wine's Whiskey of the Month, which was. Why it kind of struck my fancy, but why don't you pour us a little bit of that, Matt?
0: Don't ask me twice.
1: Yeah, so we will have um, hints of ripe fruit, spices, um, some ginger, cinnamon, and a hint of orange for a nice long finish. Nice. So let's let's see what we got here. This is a little bit different than, you know, our kind of traditional bourbon whiskeys that we've been doing uh, on the weekly. So cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jessica. Yeah, Here we go. Hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, there it is. Yeah. Oh, man, that's nice. It has an
1: interesting beginning, doesn't it? it sure does. Yeah. Double matured. Um, I've had some of the other Grange stones, and they all kind of vary based on, you know, how much um, they've been aged, what barrels they're in. So I don't know a whole lot about these uh, Madaria uh, uh, casks, but it's certainly a little more fruity than, you know, some of the other ones, wouldn't you say? Mm-hmm.
0: Go in time too here. I like that little kick that kind of hits the mm-hmm. nasal passages on the back end. Yeah. That's nice. That's got a little bit of that bourbon feel to it.
1: Mm-hmm. And on the smell too, it's not a harsh smell that stings the senses. It's uh, actually fairly pleasant.
0: That's really calm and soothing. This is just neat. I bet you with a little bit of rocks on this, that'd be really, really nice. That's almost kind of a summer sitting out by the patio drinking. Isn't summer a- scotch whiskey, yeah. Isn't it right? There we go. Yeah. Well excellent. Well nice choice. Good that one's on you. That's well done. Thank you. Yeah.
1: Thumbs up on that one. The 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 whiskey will get a a good rating. But today we haven't had a
0: bad one on here yet though.
1: Yeah, not really. Yeah. So we'll have to keep (laughs) buying these on the mystery and see like where we slip up. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Excellent. So let's let's keep things moving along. We're gonna start with our flight as we usually do. A flight of films this week. And being that we're talking about Ghostbusters and you know it's a pseudo comedy slash, you know you know, supernatural, thriller, action-y film, kind of, you know, crossing into a few different genres. You know, it's a ghost film at the end of the day. So there's been a ton of ghost films, Matt. And what would you say are the top three ghost films? I didn't want to
0: be so on the nose with this that I just did horror, horror, horror. Yeah. So I forced myself to not just do horror. Now, some horror ended up on here anyway. Okay, yeah, that's that's what I (laughs) did. Of course. Um, Well, that's not as easy as it would sound. Because like neither one of us is going to come up with
1: ghosts. Yeah, but then as I did research, uh, like films that I wouldn't necessarily categorize as ghosts, like might have paranormal elements, much like the Paranormal Activity franchise. You know, like it, the ghost genre like crosses into so many different films, even like Conjuring and films like that.
0: Well, that's how I was going to say. Like you start to play fast and loose with what makes it and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. So, but it's our podcast, so unless you're going to ring me up for a personal foul, nope, we make our own rules. Go Raptors. Go ahead. Number three for me. 1939, Topper, with Cary Grant. Mm. Uh, kind of a rock and roller with his wife. They die in a car accident. Okay. And he and his wife come back. The only problem with this film is it's not Irene Dunn. I wish his wife in this was Irene Dunn. It's sure. not. Uh, they come back to essentially teach his boss that they both worked for mm-hmm. how to live the high life. Mm-hmm. It's sort of a... From beyond the grave, comedic element, but that 1939 up to about 1945, yeah, that period of comedy is much different yeah. than I would say even the golden age of Hollywood, even though that is golden age per se. Yeah, it's a different tempo, mm-hmm. uh, and it also kind of plays with an early look at what rom com was back then in early Hollywood. Um, mm-hmm. okay. the the marriage and then remarriage kind of plays out in this as well. Yeah, and the more I thought about that, I'm like, my gosh, how can I not have Topper in this? Okay. You know
1: my affinity for Cary Grant. Yeah.
0: And so that's going to be my number three. That's is awesome.
1: And that's actually, I can't really comment much on it because I've never seen that film before. So... That might be one worth checking out. Going on my queue. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, number three for me, actually, uh, it's going to be the most recent film uh, on, on this list. And it's actually The Babadook. And, you know, I had to kind of really think, I was like, does Babadook kind of fit into this? And I was, I was like, went back to kind of read like a little bit of the synopsis. I was like, yes, it definitely does. So yeah, a little independent horror film from Australia directed by Jennifer Kent. And it's about a single mother and her son who he, he's kind of like having these paranormal visions and these things. So he's actually going into home alone mode and trying to self, uh make self-defense uh items to protect himself. And mom just won't listen to him until it's like escalated so much and the look of the babadook is is so good it's almost very lon chaney tower of midnight with like that top hat and those long like black fingers nice it just gives you the willies but uh and he's got the the the, the creepy voice i'll see if i can do it where he goes babadook Dook Dook and you hear that man you're running for the hills like i ain't sticking around for that but it's a smaller film. Oh, like I I you know me, Matt. I love that indie horror. I think you could do some fun, more creative things when you don't have suits looking over your shoulder. Sure. So yeah, that's my number three.
0: Okay, number two for me, going back a little bit here, uh, sort of ripped from classic British literature. Henry okay.
1: James is a turn of the screw as yeah.
0: the Innocents.
1: Oh, I knew you were gonna pick that one. You knew I was. I knew I was. <laughs> I, you I love this film. You okay. know I love it. I'm actually looking for another one to see if it makes it on your list too. Okay. Okay.
0: The inappropriate relationship mm-hmm. between governess and child and her trying to force whatever it is she thinks it's haunting out of him. yeah uh, it's just as as haunting as the movie is mm-hmm. with spectral images and such, yeah, especially the image of. Across the lake. Mm-hmm. And I don't give too much away. And I'm sort of not speaking too specific because I really do want our listeners to check out this film. Check out all these films. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Man, she's as hard on him as anybody. And basically, she she breaks him. Mm-hmm. So, that for me is a fantastic film. Uh, I came to that years and years ago kind of on an accident. Mm-hmm. Uh, happy accident. Yeah. I love The Innocents. Excellent. Supposedly, what I've heard, if I'm not mistaken... Season 2 of House uh, House on Haunted Hill, the yes. Netflix mm-hmm. series, is going to be a version of Turn of the Screw. Yes. Did you hear that no, too?
1: You're you right, actually.
0: Man, cross mm-hmm. your fingers. At, yeah. and on Netflix, they don't have to pull their punches. The way a lot of that is mm-hmm. regal and sort of mm-hmm. clandestinely written in a very British proper way. Yes. You can read between the lines and get, man, this is really inappropriate. Mm-hmm. They
1: don't have to do that on Netflix. Yeah. That, would you want to see it back in regal British times or like a modern take on it?
0: I wanted to be modernized yeah uh, they did that with Nicole Kidman what was it called uh, uh, others the others I felt mm-hmm. like that was sort of a an attempt mm-hmm. modernized but yet not entirely okay let's go ahead and do it today and see or at the end but if they don't yeah
1: I'm still okay with just having the innocence. okay excellent All right. number That's two a good for number you. two yeah uh, yeah number two for for myself I you know I had to go with like a very seminal classic again another pretty recent film 20-ish years it's the sixth sense from 1999 yeah uh, if you want to hear more about M. Night Shyamalan and his kind of legacy and oeuvre, go listen to the Easter 177 cast where we just broke down that entire trilogy. But talk about hitting it right out of the park, you know, right out of the gate and kind of almost cursing himself in the process. But there's no denying the impact of that film, its legendary twist and, and the subtly brilliant performances of Tony Collette and Halle Joel Osman, and Bruce Willis, too. Of you know this these kind of relationships just such in flux and it's, it just so happens to be a ghost story too. Uh, Tony Collette's influence in the horror. Oh, uh, I
0: love it. Hereditary, right? Hereditary, yes. yes. Not going to be my number one,
1: mm-hmm. although it could be. Yeah, is that is that's kind of like a cult movie, but it's kind of ghosty too. Like I, I thought about it, but it's not really. Yes, it's it's supernatural,
0: but not ghost. Okay, okay, number one for me already is The Conjuring. I love The Conjuring. I love the Vera Farmiga, Patrick Wilson interplay. The the first one. Number one. Okay. I think the possibilities in the basement of spectral items that the Warrens have collected from houses. Oh, yeah. It's just a whole library of stories waiting to be told, and they seem to not be able to do anyone but fucking Annabelle. (laughs) No, yeah, it's just like... Another Annabelle coming. Exactly. But, okay. Uh... Yeah, the conjuring, it's smart. There's some really funny points in there. It's scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really good about family. You and I really enjoy like mm-hmm. good family dynamic yep. in our stories. Yep. Yeah, it's the conjuring. Yeah. Today. That may change. Sure. Topper won't change. The innocence won't change. Number one may change. Okay.
1: That's actually that wasn't the one I thought it was gonna end. Up. Gonna oh, give I me- thought it was gonna be Ghost Story. Uh okay, so do you want the truth? Sure. I had a conversation with
0: myself this morning in the shower about that very thing. (laughs) (laughs) And Jesse, it was in contention. Okay. That movie uh, is so masterfully told Mm -hmm. from the point of view of regret. Mm -hmm. The problem with that film is it was done so cheaply. It hasn't aged like sure. some things might. And that's yeah. going to be a kind of a consistent theme for me a little bit sure. here going forward. Sure.
1: Okay. My number one from two thousand and seven is the Orphanage, um, produced by Guillermo del Toro, and it's another kind of pseudo-independent. It's a foreign film in Spanish, but another kind of quiet, slow build to a pretty great twist, tragic twist and it doesn't you know cheap out on like the cheap jump scares it's gonna kind of build its atmosphere in a very creepy way through this orphanage there's a story about this family and uh, the mother was an orphan she decides to go reopen this orphanage as a home for disabled children her son goes missing and it becomes kind of this embattled quest to find him and kind of warding off this evil social worker who just keeps trying to say that like that's kind of like her son, and this and that. If you haven't seen The Orphanage, I highly recommend it. I'm unsure if it's on any of the streaming sites right now, but. I own that one in my library. I, I love that film.
0: As do I. That is a terrific movie.
1: Excellent. Uh, there's a lot of stuff I thought about too. I mean, last week we talked about Poltergeist. I toyed with playing putting that one in here. I like the Conjuring films, like you. I actually think I prefer the second one a little bit more to the first one, hmm. but they're both pretty solid.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, yeah, there was some stuff that didn't quite make it. You know, I'm a Carp- John Carpenter guy. I thought about you know pers- personally. I love the fog. I think that's yeah. a fun pirate ghost. Mm-hmm. It's different than you know your traditional fare, but. Man, we could have gone in many different directions with that. So yeah, amen to that. Nice let, choices. Yeah, let us know what your uh, top three favorite ghost films are. And I tried not to like include Ghostbusters since we're going to be talking about it today. So yeah, let's get to happy hour times. Get to what we're here for. And we're going to do it a little different today. We're going to kind of you know break it down in traditional fashions, but we're going to kind of break it down you know by the beats of a screenplay and kind of let you know how that process goes about. So. Buckle up. Are you ready to bust some ghosts, Matt?
0: Uh, I think this is the inciting incident.
1: Excellent. Here, oh, we, here go. we go. Here we go. Here we go.
2: something strange...
1: Ghostbusters opens not with an opening scene to introduce our heroes, but actually to introduce the paranormal itself to this poor old librarian who probably wishes she was retired, but she isn't. and Has to go stock books in the basement of the New York City library and is greeted to a pretty horrific ghost. So in about two minutes, we kind of establish that, you know, this is something that's intended to scare you a bit. And, you know, we're hit right off the bat. And let's just talk about it right now, about uh, Ray Parker Jr.'s seminal theme song, Ghostbusters. Again, I think one of the reasons why the film is so popular and endears uh, so many so many years later is because of this song. And it's play at Halloween and through the 80s. Well, every time that there's something that's set
0: up perfectly, who you going to call is the punchline for every joke that was set up by the straight line. Yep. It doesn't even just mean ghosts. It's part of lexicon. That is a seminal song from a guy who had a very measured, shall we say, career when it came to recording music-wise, mm-hmm. uh, and it maybe predates you a bit. But the video's fantastic as well mm-hmm. because I'll the ghosts—they be- all showed up. Yep, it's it's and a whole lot of other people too.
1: Yeah, I'm almost kind of seminally ripped off from Huey Lewis's "I Want I Want a New Drug," which they use that theme I read like as kind of placeholder to kind of create this theme. And then it sounded too similar. So they they actually settled that court for whatever undisclosed amount of money, but I had no idea. That's the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. Interesting. I think that this song, unlike many others in film, I can't really think, you know, like a film's theme song that defines it, you know, so clearly this clearly does the job and we get it right here at the, at the very beginning.
0: Can I ask you a question? Go ahead. The first time you saw this movie. Okay. We can go back there in your head. Yeah, let's do it. And we had the library sequence. Yeah. She's just putting the books away and then the books start floating on the shelves behind her and then the card catalog starts spewing everywhere. Yes. Did you think you were in a in for a much different version of the movie than what you got?
1: Mm. As far as horror? Yeah, I thought I was, I think as a kid, I think it's, I think the horror is more evident than the comedy that beginning. Yeah. I, no, through the, I think through the whole movie, actually. Hmm. Because this is one of those films that, you know, if you haven't seen it recently, like, if you... Ghostbusters is interesting because it has that kid appeal because they're ghost exterminators and they have the cool weaponry, which I want to actually talk about in a little bit. But there's, like, a cool kind of element to that character and that world that they set up. And as a kid, you want to see them bust the ghosts. Uh, so you're, the jokes aren't real quick to kind of, like land and um they're kind of to go over your head as an adult that's actually the part that speaks to me a little bit more uh the first time i saw this film i remember it was actually on a saturday or a sunday on on fox like during the day it was like their afternoon movie at like two o'clock and the bit when the ghosts break out of the containment unit like at the end of act two we'll get it just kind of get into and uh, dana barrett's kind of just like leering towards the window oh i had to run out of the room it scared it scared the shit out of me and i kind of didn't want to finish the movie and i might not have finished the movie until Mm. years later wow so it kind of it kind of freaked me out a little bit it wasn't the comedy that it's like kind of supposed to be as well okay yeah so yeah so i think as a kid i think yeah i think i'm getting you know something that's kind of spooky and the ghosts are going to be cool to me because you know as a little boy that's visually it's appealing right yeah So then we get the introduction of our characters now coming up with, and the first one, you know, about four minute, four minute sequence, we get the introduction of Peter Venkman, who's, they all work at, uh, you know, Columbia University, and they're all kind of you know hacks to their own right. But Peter Venkman's a little more hacky and almost like borders on douchey with like his methods and ideology. And I, I this this kind of like volunteer psychology thing, which I actually did some of that volunteer psychology bullshit in college, and it was never anything like electroshock to uh, test your your ESP or your clairvoyance. But the way he just kind of plays this guy because he wants to get in this chick's pants. like <laughs> I love that scene. Yeah. That, to me, is the funniest bit in the whole film. The mm. entire
0: film, that's okay. the funniest bit. And what's funny is the guy that he's shocking, his reactions when he gets shocked. Yeah. <laughs> when that that the, bit of gum flies yeah. out of his mouth.
1: I'm getting a little tired of this. He's like, we're paying you, aren't we? You could keep the five bucks. Like, I think that's funny, too. That's like the cherry on top is... He's, and he's right on a couple of them too, and he mm-hmm. still shocks him. He's like, oh, "It's okay. We only have eighty-seven more to go, or something. 75 some, more yeah, to go. some obscene number. Right, right. You can't see through these, can you? Yeah, I think that's that's a good bit of um, yeah. Con- but it introduces his character perfectly because, as much as he is a scientist, I think he's got other ideas of how he wants to reap the benefits of that title. Sure. And this is obviously one of them. Yeah. And in busts in Dr. Raymond Stance, played by Dan Aykroyd, one of the film's writers, who in real life, he's like a crazy paranormal, comes from a whole lineage of people that are just obsessed with like ghosts and this and this and this and, this and that. So this is actually his brainchild. He created this idea, birth as kind of a vehicle for him, John Belushi, and Eddie Murphy. And it was actually going to be a very expensive film where they were going to traverse space and time to be Ghost Exterminators. They kept the Ghost Exterminators bit, but they brought Ivan Reitman in. He's like, yeah, we need to tone this down because we don't have money to pay for a film like that. John Belushi actually um, passed away in there, so it kind of changed the dynamic of how they were going to approach the film. And Eddie Murphy kind of became his own kind of movie star in the early 80s, you know, 48 Hours and and, and things, and Beverly Hills Cop, which actually came out this same year. Yep. More on that later. But they actually brought in my favorite component to this idea, which was Harold Ramis. Now, Harold Ramis had been, you know, a writer and a director in his own right, directing, you know, tacking on stuff like, uh, like, Animal House and he directed Caddyshack and then they met with Stripes and did that with Reitman and Bill Murray. So they had that connection there and their jobs as writers were to Dan Aykroyd was to kind of build the world, set up the scenarios and, and include all that paranormal jar- jargon. And Ramus was to touch up dialogue and, you know, create some comedy out of that, as, as you will. So together, you know, they they, they kind of brought this, this together. So right off the bat, you know, Raymond's like the ever-believer. The, the non-skeptic. He's very the Fox moulder of the Ghostbusters. <laughs> <laughs> well said,
0: yes. Yep. I want to go back to one thing what you just said since we're going to sort of approach this from the screenwriting point of view. Sure. <clears throat> this idea of a screenplay sort of being developed piecemeal mm-hmm. is not unique to this story. Mm-hmm. And it's where a lot of good movies go to die as well. Yeah. You have this idea. You craft it. They buy it from you. Mm-hmm. It goes to the production studio. Yeah. Per WGA rights, you get the first crack at the rewrite, which usually is just window dressing because they've already hired someone else to come in and rewrite it as you're rewriting it. Mm -hmm. And then by the time it's all said and done, Mm -hmm. it's not uncommon for the script to look so unlike what it started as that they bring the original writers back in Mm -hmm. to fix what they broke, which was the original script. Yeah. That's they call it notes. Yeah. Here's the notes we want you to do. Yeah. And that's essentially a page one rewrite for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So I want everyone to understand this. And this for a lot of people, mm-hmm. which I guess could be frustrating in the industry. Not for you and I, if it ever happened. Sure. Or. Yeah. Once they buy that script from you, mm-hmm. they don't want you around anymore. Mm-hmm. They
1: don't want you on set. Very rarely do you get to like have that input. Well, if you're Shane Black maybe. So unless you're like a Shane Black or like a Tarantino right. or like a Nolan producing
0: and writing and directing
1: yourself or you have the power to do so and Shamara. call your own shots. Yeah, maybe not him so much. <laughs> yeah. Well, once upon a time. <laughs> yeah, once upon a time. So that can be
0: really really troubling for a lot of writers. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesse and I had an experience Man, it had to have been 15 years ago mm-hmm. with the guy that wrote History of Violence, mm-hmm. which was adapted from a graphic novel. Yep. Back in those days, uh, I just finished an internship at Benderspink, which was a short-lived thing where I was reading and giving feedback. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and we were working at the screenwriting conference at that time. and We brought in this guy, which I'm not going to name because yeah. it's not really appropriate. Yeah. And we had a writer's panel. These were all, mm-hmm. you know, B to A minus list guys. Yeah. And you remember what he was bitching about on stage that night? Yeah. That his next gig yeah. after the History of Violence was going to be the sequel to The Wizard of Oz. Yeah. And you and I looked at each other and said... I'd kill for that. I'd kill for that. Yeah. Cut off half my leg. Like, just was so <laughs> above it. Yeah. And so Boondock saintsy writer's bullshit ego. I just sat there... And thinking, I hate History of Violence. It, as do I, <laughs> though, to that. Yeah. I hate the fucking Boondock Saints, <laughs> too. Yep, Um, So... Listen to that guy piss and moan about that. And you know what? I haven't seen his name on anything. And I haven't specifically looked hard. Yeah. But I'm connected
1: enough to where I'm seeing his name on anything. But he probably became notoriously difficult to kind of work with, which he probably just wrote himself out of Hollywood. He had to have known that. Yeah. I
0: mean, and let's be honest about what he got. Mm -hmm. He got an award-winning graphic novel. He didn't... A spec screenplay means you craft it from origin. Mm -hmm. It's not adapted from something. Ghostbusters is a spec screenplay.
1: Man, like 80% of things that come out in a calendar year are probably adapted of sorts. It's impossible to get something sold on spec Mm -hmm. today. Yep. Yep. So,
0: what is he crying about? He took someone else's source material, found a way to write a screenplay, which is one of the, mm-hmm. in some ways, easiest ways to write, but also not. But in some ways, as far as actual story, yeah. didn't have to fill in any of the gaps. Yeah. Gets Wizard of Oz too. Let me ask you a question. Sure. Was MGM going to put money behind the sequel to The Wizard of Oz? Most definitely. Fuck yeah, they were. Yeah. And that guy's up there crying? Yeah. I just think people out there need to understand, from the writer's point of view, mm-hmm. you're a hired gun, and once the script is
1: gone, mm-hmm. it's gone. Once yeah. they bought it, it's gone. Yeah.
0: And you have to be okay with that.
1: Yeah, you have to be okay with that seven figures in your bank account. Uh, yeah, five, <laughs> 5% of budget yeah. per WGA rules. So yeah, yeah, exactly. That, so well, yeah. WGA is the Writers Guild of America, mm-hmm. by the way. So, excellent. Right after this, we—well, um, well, Braids let him know that they've— um, there's been a call from the library that they've actually some woman seen a full floating, free roaming vapor, and it's real. And so they're gonna go down there. So right off the bat, we kind of get the idea that he's doing clairvoyance experiments. Here comes in his colleague, and he's obsessed with ghosts. That they actually have some type of like ghost connection. They're working on something. What's interesting, um, thinking about Ghostbusters, that you might not you know consider you know with the idea is that the film starts out and they've actually never. They're not really good at their jobs. They really never experienced anything that they've spent decades studying in school to, like, prove anything. So this is kind of like their virgin run here at the at the library. And then we're introduced to the third member, Dr. Egon Spangler. And he's actually my favorite member of the entire group because of how deadpan he is. And he might actually be the brainiest, but he's also like the doofiest at the same time like i think bankman gives him a line where like egon this reminds me of the time you tried to drill a hole through your head that would have worked too if you hadn't stopped me (laughs) like just kind of like they're just so brainy for their own good but matt kind of right off off the bat here i actually asked my wife when we were when we were watching it if you could describe like all three of these these characters to me just from this little opening bit of them kind of exploring like can, can you give me, like, a little bit? Vickman's the player. Okay. Uh,
0: Spangler's the scientist. Mm-hmm. And Stans is the zealot. There you go. That's what I would give him. And that gets to the screenwriting beat that I think we should cover right here. Let's do it. Which is the introduction. Mm-hmm. So in the first five to six pages of any screenplay worth its salt, mm-hmm. we got to hit this first beat. Now, beats, the way Jesse and I look at this is mm-hmm. we, we play in a 10-step or 10-beat platform. Yep. Okay. So beat one is our introduction, and that is at the beginning of this, and I'm going to ask you the same question back in a minute, but let me get this out while it's on my mind. Go ahead. While we hit these beats, this first one is the introduction of main characters in a setting that the audience will be familiar with or familiarize themselves in so far as we recognize them as a member of this society Mm -hmm. or a member of this cult or this profession. Yeah. And if you want to put the fourth member in there, yes, be the ghost. Yep. Now, we could talk about any pots, but let's not. Yeah. I mean, you know what I mean? I don't, <laughs> no, no I, don't, I don't mean that. I yeah, just no, mean yeah. she's just a side character. Yeah. So we have mm-hmm. those three characters and the ghost. If I was going to ask you the same question, what yeah. would you name
1: those three guys? I would name them. Or clarify, the, characterize those three guys. Sure, yeah. You know, like I, I kind of see, you know, all the mythology and the world building coming from... Dr. Raymond Stance, who's going to build their tools, their supplier, their Lucius Fox of sorts as Egon. And Venkman's kind of the wild card. I kind of don't know what to expect from him. He's kind of like a loose cannon. I know he wants to help us out and believes in the cause. But he's also going to steer us into some very unorthodox paths coming up here in a bit. But Aykroyd described it as the brains, the heart, and the mouth. Okay, perfect. And kind of described it as kind of an unorthodox, uh, speaking of Wizard of Oz, a Tin Man, Lion, and Scarecrow situation. Mm, that's which interesting. Which is, is, yeah, you can kind of see that. But here they are on their first ghost adventure. And this opening scene, it does a good job of setting up, you know, the tools of the trade. And I got to give Ghostbusters a lot of props for, we don't get this today, Matt. We get, we're getting a Men in Black sequel this week that we don't want. A failed X-Men sequel last week. Uh, we're getting all these different kind of attempts, but back here in the '80s, I think films like this, Back to the Future, Indiana Jones, Star Wars, got to actually build mythologies and worlds and kind of uh, 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 tools of the trade of sorts. We get the PKE meter, we get like the ectoplasmic residue. Later, we get the the, the proton packs and the ecto one and and the characters. Yeah, films like this don't get to do that. If anything, they're rehashing all that shit. Which is kind of nice. It's nice world building in film. You get to do that every day in a book, but it's rare in movies now. Two things about that. I think that's really well said.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The death for any movie or script, spec, yeah. script right now is no built-in audience. Yep. And the difference between this period that we're in is the Reitmans, the Donners, the Silvers, I could go on. Yeah. We'ren't afraid to take a chance on what we would call a high concept idea. Yeah. So let's break that down right now because this is gold <clears throat> if you can get one. You want to attack it first?
1: Yeah. And this, I think, this film's a good example. Exactly. This is a film about uh, ghost exterminators, like in New York City. Like it's you say ghost ex- or exterminators who exterminate ghosts. Like you see the movie like on the screen. Another one, Jaws in space, like yep. Alien. You see the movie already. And then looking at titles too, the 40-year-old virgin, the title tells you exactly what that movie is going to be about. So a high-concept idea that can you can build a lot around that. And that's just the idea. You haven't even put the meat in yet.
0: So there's three things that I look for, and you just said the first one perfectly. Mm-hmm. Okay, you can see the whole movie in a sentence or less. Ghostbusters. Yep. Okay, the second one is widely appealing. Mm-hmm. It's that four-quadrant summer essential component. Yep. And then the third piece is unique prior to ghostbusters there hadn't been a ghost hunting movie like this Mm -hmm. jaws no No. Mm -mm. so we can go on and on and on right those are the three check marks for high concept now there's a fourth sort of bit newer element to that and mm-hmm. that's budget yeah and that's single location and under five million dollars which of course they want that yeah of course every studio uh, that, wants the hardest one to do high concept under five million one location yeah what is, yeah. This, what is this
1: lifeboat <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah that's, right that's that's really difficult so
0: that creates the high concept playing field mm-hmm. and this and that decade the 1980s i think really excelled at that the second point that i wanted to make mm-hmm. You're talking about world building. Mm-hmm. You know the movie franchise that I think that has done that the best in the last five to six years is. I mean, I already know. You what, know what it is. I know it is. Go, John Wick for sure. Yeah, it's John Wick mm-hmm. as done on spec. It's John Wick without question. Mm-hmm. They didn't, or they weren't so scared to not take a chance on a guy whose career was basically over. Sure, yeah, and I love Keanu Reeves. I think we do too. Yeah, but. He was gettable because he didn't have a gig exactly, and they went over the top with violence. And the assassin's world, from mm-hmm. the hotel mm-hmm. to the tokens yep. to everything that plays out in John Wick, mm-hmm. is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, from a conceived and spec screenplay idea, mm-hmm. it's a fantastic yeah. story.
1: I see a lot of those seeds kind of here too. Sure, that series did like the sequels way better than how this movie followed up its sequels. But yeah. you see that here, like. It's set in a world that you're familiar with present or 1980s New York, but the tools and the uniforms and the lingo and the ghost catching the mechanisms and the villains, which I, I want to talk about the villains here coming up. You're right. It's, it's non-existent today, but was it excelled in the 80s, like in a number of films.
0: So let's pick it up story-wise. Okay, so we get rid of the library ghost. I'll let you go ahead. Yeah,
1: our first ghost encounter, it goes poorly because they really don't know how to deal with it. And they actually run screaming because it's it, like, jumps out at them. Right. Get, get her. That was your plan. Mm-hmm. Good move. But we're in, instantly go from this to what Matt and I would call the inciting incident of the film, which is going to be the conflict idea that's going to propel the film forward. To its conclusion, in this film, it is the Ghostbusters getting kicked off campus because they haven't produced a lick of anything. They're just like reaping the benefits of grants and them coming up with the idea. Well, let's just go into business for ourselves. What does that mean? And Bing was like, I don't know, but let's just do it. Everyone has three mortgages nowadays. <laughs>
0: exactly, the interest alone is eighty-five thousand dollars a month. In nineteen eighty-four, that's equivalent of like three twenty, three forty. Mm-hmm.
1: And we're getting this right here at the thirteen to fourteen minute mark. So we're moving along at a nice pace here. We've introduced our characters, we've set up our protagonists, and now we're setting them on their path to what they're going to become.
0: There's a there's another beat in between the opening and the inciting incident that's sort of done in unison with the inciting incident in this, mm-hmm. and that's by page ten. Mm-hmm. Uh, This is one of... It's an important beat, but it's not as important as the inciting instant Because I'm going to argue that's the most important beat in the entire film. Mm -hmm. And we'll break that down here in just a moment. Yes. The by page 10 is essentially 10% into the movie. Your audience should know exactly what this film is about. Mm -hmm. And I think we get it. Mm -hmm. These guys hunt ghosts. Now, the inciting incident, for everybody that's listening, I'm going to put them through a little drill. Go ahead. I want them to look at their feet and imagine that there's a line in the sand... Right at the tip of their big toes. That line in the sand is the point at which we embark on the quest mm-hmm. to story yes. and script. Mm-hmm. Now, every inciting instant, if done well, is met with resistance to where the protagonist mm-hmm. won't step over that line to begin the quest. Yeah. But inevitably they have to, otherwise you don't have a story. Mm-hmm. So what I want you guys to think of as you're listening to this is there's that line and some event happens in the movie that pushes you forward over that line. And once you've crossed that line, there's no going back. Mm -hmm. That's the inciting incident. That is, we have no money. We have no uh, way to track down these ghosts. We've got to figure out a way to do it on our own. Let's go into business for ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's the inciting incident is
1: essentially mm-hmm. them getting fired from Columbia University. Mm-hmm. The call to, action, as call to action, as you will. Joseph Campbell, right? Yep. And there's there's some funny lines in there, too, where he's like, you've never been out of college. I've worked in the public sector. They expect results. <laughs> That's so awesome! So they've never been doing anything for like <laughs> the last eight years, which is hilarious to me because they appear so brainy, but they're kind of like they're kind of lost and dim-witted. Yes, as smart as they are, so they actually um, take out a th- uh, on on Ray's inheritance uh, three uh, three mortgages <laughs> to buy this rinky-dink, falling apart uh, firehouse. Fire station, yeah. Which you know what? I've never been to New York City, Matt. I want to go. I want to see all the sites. But one of the things I got. I gotta see. I gotta go see this Ghostbusters firehouse. Like, I'm gonna make the fan pilgrimage to see that. So, Ray was hesitant to take out the mortgage, but then he's all giddy when he's like, hey, does this pole still work? And, like, he's on board now. And then, little by little, now we start kind of putting the pieces into place of how they're gonna go about doing this. Getting a car, which is. Costs like $5,000 and it needs like $15,000 worth of repairs. This old hearse that they turned it actually into a really unique thing that we're going to talk about in the nightcap. Actually,
3: Oh, Dan, it's you. Oh, hi. Yes, Lewis. It's me. I thought it was
1: a drugstore.
3: Oh, are you sick? Oh, no, no, I'm fine. I feel great. Just ordered some more vitamins and stuff. I was just exercising. I taped twenty minute workout of my machine and played it back at high speed. so it only took ten minutes. I got a great workout. Good, you want to come in for a mineral waters? Oh, I'd really like to, um, Lewis, but I have to go to rehearsal now. Excuse me. No sweat. I'll take a rain check on that. I always have plenty of low sodium mineral water and other nutritious foods in the house. But you already know that. Yeah, I know that. Listen, that reminds me. I'm having a big party for all my clients. My fourth anniversary is an accountant, you know, and even though you do your own tax return, which you shouldn't do, I'd like you to stop by, being that you're my neighbor and all. Well, thank you, Lewis. I'll really try to stop by. Listen, that reminds me, you shouldn't leave your TV on so loud when you go out to creep down the hall phone the manager. Well, that's strange. I didn't realize I left it on. Oh, yeah, you know what I did? I climbed on the ledge and tried to disconnect the cable, but I couldn't get in, so you know what I did? I turned up my TV real loud, too, so everyone would think well, that both their TVs had something wrong with it.
1: So then we're introduced to two more characters at this point, uh, Dana Barrett and Louis Tully. And I just gotta just little fan service. I, in my opinion, I I love Louis Tully. I love Rick Moranis, and God bless him. I wish he was still making movies because. His comedic timing, and it might just be because he's like five foot four, and Sigourney Weaver's like six two. Yeah. <laughs> he just looks so little compared to her. And I love this bit. Okay, again, talking about what he becomes. He becomes Vince Clortho, the Keymaster of Gozer. Which, real quick, Keymaster of Gozer is actually my name in Fantasy Baseball right now. I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> okay. So good. amen to you, Rick Moranis. <laughs> but he's the Keymaster, and on like three separate occasions, he unlocks himself out of his apartment. I think I think it's hilarious, and he's like. He was like, oh i got a couple of vitamins and like i i did a workout and i i i, I fast forwarded it and, and and half the time i got a great workout I did it in 10 minutes he's like oh, are you gonna come over to my party and like he's he's so clingy but it's it's hard not to feel sorry for him yeah especially later at his own party
0: <laughs> that bit when he meets sigourney weaver and tries to roll on her as she's walking down the hall is just so painfully mm-hmm, awkward mm-hmm. and he's really good in that mm-hmm. space too By the way, that reminds me. (laughs) With his tracksuit on,
1: that's got the high waters. It's
0: it's magic. That's good. Yeah, just like
1: these guys, like these actors. It was like such a great time for comedy because you know Bill Murray, Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, John Candy, Rick Moran. All these guys either emerged from uh, Saturday Night Live or Second City Television in in Canada, and we had some great comedic actors. That it was a little bit different than what we had seen. You know, the Milton Berle, uh, Sid Caesar type of days, you know, with those comedic actors, Peter Sellers even. It was a different type, and it was it got a little raunchier around this time. Sure. Uh, but I think, like, the comedic timing was definitely there for a lot of these actors. Because Saturday Night Live was well, maybe kind of in its dark ages at this time, but all these guys had come from it. They were kind of legends on their own right. I agree, yeah. So, excellent. So, Dana has a bit of a paranormal experience when... Opening up uh, her fridge, she uh, sees kind of the end of the movie, which is uh, this kind of temple. Looks like the front album cover of an Earth, Wind, and Fire album. <laughs> and, and this dog speaks Zool. Very, you know, it's not something you see every day. So what's nice about this is that they they plugged, you know, how she was going to go to the – and they've already started doing commercials on TV. They haven't gotten work yet. She sees that before seeing this and then sees that and is instantly going to them. They've recruited this kind of, you know, kind of anal receptionist, Janine. And, you know, they're just struggling to kind of put this uh, shanty firehouse together. And she comes to them with their first kind of big case of sorts. Come investigate my apartment. And the characters that we were introduced to start
0: to play in their natural roles. Mm -hmm. So, Vinkman recognizes this is a potential woman, and I think I got a crack. I'll go back
1: to Miss Barrett's apartment and check her out. I'll go check out Miss Barrett's apartment. Right. Spangler's a little too egg-headed to even
0: care about that. (laughs) Meanwhile, the anal receptionist... um, Janine. Janine Andy Potts has kind of already taken a shine to him. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) Vinkman's... Or uh, Stans is just elated (laughs) that there's some action that they're getting. Mm -hmm. So, we're getting... The characters in their element responding yeah. to their first call to action, if you will. Perfect. Yeah. From her. Okay. I think
1: I think it's defining them, you know, you know, really good. It's they're all very defined in their traits. Nothing's more frustrating in an action film where everyone's just the same. Like, you know, those right. like Fast and the Furious films and everyone's just trying to out macho them where they're all just kind of blend into one just kinda of like Macho douche. (laughs) Here you can definitely tell like how different they are. You know, George Lucas was really good at this in the original star Wars film, really defining what those characters are and how different they are. Mm -hmm. They go to Miss Barrett's apartment. They find nothing. You know, anytime I'm I'm at a piano too, I always uh, uh, jingle my, my fingers on the keys and I'm like, they hate this. (laughs) See, ghostbusters has just leaked onto my life. Like I'm always kind of finding little ways to incorporate it in there. But They've found nothing. It's kind of a dead end. Hopefully, it comes to something. She's paid them something, obviously, and then they get their first call at the the Stanwick Hotel. Uh, they've they've had a ghost, uh, which we find out is going to be nicknamed Slimer, which Belushi uh, or, or um, Dan Aykroyd has said was actually an homage to John Belushi. Oh, that's this great. kind of like I didn't know that gluttonous kind of kind of man. Like this was kind of like his like homage. Cause, you know they were real close. Like when all that kind of went down. Blues Brothers. So, again, we kind of see them in their element, and they had these uh, nuclear accelerator proton packs on that they've never tested in any instance. And they're just going to go hog wild here in this hotel, not before some hilarious destruction ensues. I love the line where Egon tells them, Mm
0: -hmm. we shouldn't cross the beams. They've already unleashed these beams, and they're just destroying everything, including, like, the maid (laughs) in the hallway. Yes. So... Why shouldn't we cross these beams? Well, could bring about basically the end of all humanity.
1: Imagine every molecule in your body exploding instantaneously at the speed of light. Yeah, that's bad. Yeah. Like, okay, thanks. Good uh, very, to know. Thanks, Egon. Thanks, Egon. <laughs> like, yeah, that, you might want to open up with that. Right. And there's you know, talking about just the comedic timing, like when he flips on his proton pack in the elevator, Egon does, and then he kind of like sidles to the corner because doesn't know what the, that thing might explode right there like. Even the Brainiacs, unsure of what they're getting into. They're successful in their capture of Slimer, of the Slimer Ghost. And, you know, they charge $5,000, like, trying to, like, really milk it. And then we get something that I think a lot of films are very poor at doing, which is montage. So, at this point, Matt, we've reached the next big beat in our film, which is the end of Act 1. The Ghostbusters kind of coming together for the first time in their vehicle, with their gear, in their uniforms to take down what they're going to do. And they succeeded in that.
0: Yes, we see the trials and tribulations of Slimer and their Mm -hmm. ill-fated but semi-successful efforts in capturing the least threatening ghost, maybe next to Casper, that's ever walked the earth. (laughs) Yes. And then from that, it's off to the races because they go to a great montage that's led in, like you just mentioned, Mm -hmm. with some press clippings some media soundbites <clears throat> and then we get ray parker and his montage and the ghostbusters just busting mm-hmm. just going about their business and we start to see a fairly rapid ascension to a place of popularity and
1: success and and money yeah and i think too it, it like it, it fast forwards the film maybe a couple months yeah a month or month or two which is nice now we get to get in a little late and they got money coming in, but they're also getting a little overworked. So what's the next thing? We gotta hire someone else. So in comes Ernie Hudson, Winston Zedmore, and I just gotta shout out poor Winston, man. He's gotten kind of a tough, a tough rap the entire you know, legacy of this film, which is celebrating its 35th anniversary uh, this year, in fact. So perfect timing to do this podcast. But when I watched my version of the DVD, the opening menu was like uh, the Ecto-1, their vehicle, and the reflection of the Ghostbusters in like the window. (laughs) It was just the three of them It didn't have him. But he didn't have his name on the poster. I mean, he, he hasn't had that. But Winston actually serves a very important character role later in the film where if you have the mouth, you have the brains, you have the heart, Winston's your outsider. Winston's your Dana Scully. And once he actually kind of sees the shit that unfolds and his time busting ghosts, he's going to be the one to really say, you know, like, you know what? This shit is real. And you need to start taking them seriously back when they're in the mayor's office. He's actually the one that's able to kind of plead to them that I've seen these things and you got to believe me that this shit is real. What I like about
0: his character, too, yeah, is he represents sort of the spirit of the group. I don't mm-hmm. want to say mm-hmm. the soul because that seems so on the nose yeah. to say about mm-hmm. Ernie Hudson. Yeah. But... He does that conversation that he has with Dan Aykroyd Mm -hmm. that's fairly heavy biblically referenced with Revelations where they're quoting scripture to each other. Judgment Day. Man, that's not comedy. Mm -hmm. That's not drama. That's straight soul. Yeah. And I think what you said is really profound. He Mm -hmm. does serve an important role in the film. Yeah. As what's the castaway D-minus version of Eddie Murphy that was still left in the script fulfilling whatever need Eddie Murphy didn't. Exactly. And... Yeah, I mean
1: I know why he's not on the cover because he kind of doesn't matter, but well, he doesn't show really up until it. until halfway through. It's just that he's not another he they're not just adding another character to kind of like dispose of it. Like I think he suits some purpose like you just said. Yeah. I love that the spirit of the Ghostbusters. Yeah. Yeah. So we're getting close to one of our other beats of the film, which is going to be called the midpoint, but we got a pretty big scene that's going to happen here. We're actually going to be in, introduced to sub-antagonist Of the film, Mr. Walter Peck, played by William Atherton, and who plays the same role in Die Hard, by (laughs) the way, plays the same douche bastard in that film. So, what you're saying, the movie
0: becomes a documentary at this point because even in Ghostbusters, the EPA are fucking pain in the ass. It's funny. I
1: I was reading a little bit about this guy, and he actually like in public like gets a real hard rap because he's played like such unlikable characters. Like (laughs) just on the street, they just like go, "Hey, dickless!" (laughs) Like it's true. This man has no dick. Yeah, so at least he has that legacy into himself. But, man, he just totally throws a wrench in this whole thing. And he's going to bring the authorities down and a search warrant because he wants to look at the protection grid that these ghosts are being housed in. Which Of course he does. Which Egon, at the same time, was like, you know what, Ray? It's getting pretty crowded in there. Like, I don't know what we're going to do if we're so busy with all this ghost busting. And we're on the uh, cusp of something monumental. Yeah. So well, this
0: is an important point because now you get another mm-hmm. active protagonist. Because this is one of the qualms I have with this film. Mm-hmm. It's been a long time since we've seen a ghost at this point in the movie. Sure, I know you have the dogs with Sigourney Weaver and Rick Moranis and Zulu and whatever the hell his name is. <laughs> Zulu. <Zool. laughs> okay, yeah. No, what's no Zool? Zool. Yeah. yeah. And then whatever that. What's his Vince Clortho? There you go, Vince Clortho. Yeah. But.
1: Slimer was the last ghost in this movie. Yeah, because we
0: don't really... And that's s- probably 20 minutes ago. Yeah.
1: And not if you count the ghost uh, oral sex scene, which I totally forgot to mention. <laughs> right. As right. a kid, you don't know what the hell that is. I know. I and then that. as an adult, you're like, why the hell is he crossing this? Oh, okay. Got that's quietly kind of s- smart writing, too, like on their part. <laughs> so these beats we're talking about
0: are housed in a really traditional and familiar standard story form for you all, and that's beginning, middle, and end. Yeah. So the movie script is based on a three-act structure, act mm-hmm. one, act two, act three, essentially beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. In definitions of time, a page on the screen is about... Or, I'm sorry, a minute on the, on the screen is a page in the script. Mm-hmm. So... It's about two-thirds, it's like 60% is your second act, with the other 40% being divided up between the beginning and the third act. Mm -hmm. So, when we talk about the point we're getting to, Rich, now, which is the midpoint, Mm -hmm. we're at the middle, middle of the
1: story. Yeah, and we're at 45 minutes in the movie right now. Right. Is the movie 90 minutes? Uh, It's one hour and 40 minutes. So, 100 minutes. To fade out. This is like the perfect length for a movie, actually. 50 minutes, yeah. Yeah.
0: So at fifty minutes, it's literally halfway through, and that's probably less than well, less than credit time too. Yes. So it might even be even no, more. No, it's one forty at fade out. Oh, really? The final scene. I timed it all out. Okay, wow. Mm-hmm. So about halfway through the movie, we get the middle, middle part. So the, the Busters are well on their quest. We've seen them met with some success, as we talked about with the montage. Mm-hmm. Things are developing with another secondary protagonist. I'm sorry, yeah. antagonist, yes. Matherton, mm-hmm. And then we get more development with the Sigourney Weaver character. Mm-hmm. And she comes home, and I'll let you have this one.
1: Sure. And it's at this point in like in the format that we're, we're we're discussing here is where shit just hits the fan, and it's about to get more complicated before it gets better or more intense for the heroes. Well, for okay, to put that in screenwriting terms, it's
0: yeah. escalating conflict. Yeah. Think about a staircase. Mm-hmm. So the opening is like step one. Mm-hmm. The inciting incident would be step three. And act two might be step five. We're somewhere around step eleven on our way to maybe twenty. Yeah. So it's the stakes are taking on weight. Yeah. The volume of the film, intensity-wise per conflict, has increased. Yeah. And we see it because it's kind of a brutal moment for her. Mm-hmm. Go take it.
1: Yeah. So it's um they have this hotel, which we're gonna get into a little bit more of, like kind of like what it's a bu- a, a brooding ground for is. She's taken by uh, one of these kind of demon dogs. So this one that's in her apartment is uh, called Zul, and these hands just come out of her her armchair and just like just kind of like restrain her, and this thing just sends her right to Zul to possess her and take her over. Right, and then the same for Vince Clortho's, a party for his tax clients because he's an accountant. <laughs> This is real Nova Scotia Sagman. The brisa room temperature. Uh, I have a seat of gas. <laughs> I give get Tony of that for the name brand. Cheaper, better financial He decisions. improvised the whole scene. Is that right? That, that whole bit. And they did it all in one shot. And yeah, like him dancing and... Ted and Annette Fleming and Who Brought the Dog? Does anyone of me want to play Parcheesi? So this is the second demon dog, Vince Clortho. And these two are actually the gatekeeper and the key master for a demigod or a demon of swords known as Gozer the Gozerian, which we're going to see that here coming up. So they're going to be the keys that open that up. And the way they're going to kind of open that up is pretty interesting.
0: I like the choice of Reitman and or Ackroyd, whoever this is, yeah. to use dogs as the vehicle to transport the demonic element mm-hmm. into them, yeah, Hounds of Hell, Guardians, lots. Even if you want to play the Cerebus sort of feeling from sure, Hades, sure. I think it's a pretty daunting task to escape either one of them. Mm-hmm. Now, the Sigourney Weaver character Dana doesn't put up any resistance at all because those twenty-five hands just mm-hmm. grip and grab every part of her and drag her into the into the temple. Yep. Now. <laughs> The Vince Clortho possession is much more different because he tries to escape. Yeah, he runs, and it's it's kind of a comedy of errors.
1: Yeah, and I guess that's a fault of the you know, like it's like that the claymation doesn't play as well. like when no. the do- You know, what? do we even care though? I don't. But like you know, you know, you know, the modern sensible audience like. It, that Maybe they find that a little cheesy. I don't. I think I, I always like to think of that as the aesthetic of the times.
0: That's, that bugs me. Like, I'm just going to say this. I hate that criticism. Yeah. In 1984, that's what was available. Yeah,
1: and it looked cool then.
0: That was okay back then. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want to say, oh, it hasn't aged well, then go back and watch A New Hope. Yeah. Seriously, all you old, and then and then I'm going to ask you, are you still as consistent in your criticism? Yeah. Because that movie looks like fucking <clears throat> stick puppets. Yeah. <laughs> Let's Stick be. Up. And you can see the laser light on the fucking fishing ro- like line Bearrr, fly across. Let's be real about yeah, this. Yeah.
1: So I hate that criticism. No, I, I hate it too. I'd just like to point it out that don't let that kind of deter you from enjoying the film. Like. If
0: that's what breaks the movie for you. Yeah. And I think there are criticisms to be levied and Yeah, I'm gonna, sure. I have my share of them. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. If the If what breaks the movie and your critical breaking point mm-hmm. is, yeah, the dogs, Zul and... Vince Whatever. that Yeah, that one. Yeah, don't look real. Yeah, I got nothing for you, man. Mm-hmm. Like, come on.
1: Yeah, you should probably stop watching movies. Like, th-
0: that's what it is. Fucking demon dogs from a temple from Gozer the Gozerian, a Hittite, yeah, Mayan mm-hmm. temple. Like yeah. that. That's where you're not going to suspend your disbelief. But yeah. the claymation dogs. Yeah, that, I, I hate that. Okay, criticism.
1: good. I'm glad you said that. Amen to that. Amen. Yeah. So we get two kind of new antagonists now and they all kind of are going to kind of meet up at an interesting juncture because Peter is going on a date with Dana it's not Dana it is it is Zool the Zool. gatekeeper and a oh, wanton lusty Zool yes yeah, and 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 he, she like like I want you and she like levitates over the thing and uh, he's able to kind of sedate her and then we get Vince Clortho is turned over to the Ghostbusters and hes they, they have him on that infrared and it's just the dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Should I have some coffee? Yes, have some. Yes, have some. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they're just going to make matters worse and it's going to be Walter Peck. We get that little bit of the Judgment Day talk kind of talking about, hey, Ray, maybe the reason we have been so busy, maybe the day it had been rising and maybe the end of days is upon us. Which I like the rhetoric that's being spoken here. Like there's actual stakes in this conflict of uh, our finale scene.
0: So good, Jesse. Exactly. Think about where we started off with. Which is let's just go catch some ghosts like this hot dog eating John Belushi cute ghost. Mm-hmm. Let's go catch this one. Mm-hmm. Now we're talking about end of days. The EPA is up their ass. Bill Murray's girlfriend has been possessed by a demon dog. Yeah. And so has their, her neighbor. <clears throat> and we're bringing about the most hellish evil the world has yet to meet mm-hmm. so that it can usher in the end of days. Yep. We have gone significantly up the ladder yeah. of conflict. Yeah. And the movie's taking on weight. Mm-hmm. But
1: I will say done with a comedic element still in play a little bit. Yeah, And isn't that hard to do, Matt? Like, especially dabbling in horrific elements. I already talked about how Zool Sigourney Weaver really freaked me out as a kid. And some of the ghosts are actually... I think those demon dogs for maybe like a 5 or 6 year old are kind of freaky looking. They got me
0: too. They
1: scared me too. So, like... I I was 11. I think it's hard... Like. I don't think you see a lot of films that can really balance humor and horror very well. I can't think of another one. Well, the only other one I can really think of that I really like and really enjoy is American Werewolf in London. Oh, okay, yeah, right. But that, that's a hard combo to make fit because comedy and horror kind of react the same way. I alleviate my laughter, or the joke stress. with a laugh. I alleviate, you know, the the fright with the with the laugh. That well they said. play off each other on the same kind of wavelength. Exactly. Yeah. It's the release of stress through laughter or through chic mm-hmm. Sh- chic yep. shriek. Yeah. Exactly. Excellent. So in comes Walter Peck. He has his court order. They shut down the production grid and all this hard work that they've done from beginning to this point now. All the ghosts are loose on Manhattan. The Ghostbusters are kind of pinned as kind of loony, kind of insane people. They get locked up. And it's at this point we've reached the end of Act 2. And we're going to start the beginning of Act 3. Which now we're going to have our crisis conflict resolution.
0: So this moment at the end of Act 2 is called the turning point of Act 2. Yes. And essentially at this point all of the successes that our protagonists have accomplished on their journey are all gone And they are actually in a worse position than they were before the inciting incident. Yes. Back before the inciting incident, they just didn't have a place. Mm -hmm. Now, not only do they not have a place again because they're in jail, but Judgment Day is knocking on the door. And in any minute, it's the end of civilization. Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting moment. And what you do, if you kind of think about it efficiency-wise in life, it's -hmm. it's kind of a ripoff because you've just spent... I don't know, 75 minutes, and it's all for naught. Yeah. Here's the key, though. Mm -hmm. If the characters that you have written and the scenarios you have put them in have mattered, it won't be for naught because you'll care Mm -hmm. about what comes next for them. Yes. And I think that movie or this movie does that pretty well. Okay. Literally locked up. They've got the blueprints for the city at. Yeah, there's a bunch of convicts looking over their shoulders. Yeah. But it's it's his
1: girlfriend's gone. Like everything has gone literally to hell. And let's kind it's of talking like, on the door. Let's kind of talk about this too. I don't think this film has a lot of dead weight or scenes that don't like have purpose and propel it for some decent reason. Even this one in the jail cell, which is a pretty static guy sitting around a table, yeah. is actually time for Egon and Ray to kind of explain. I yeah, did some digging on the building, and it was actually this guy, and they used it for a ceremony. Ceremonies designed to bring about the end of the world, and now it looks like that may actually happen.
0: Look, it's exposition, but it's done at least in an interesting setting. I'll yeah, exactly. Then. Okay, all right, and, that's
1: fair. And the guys kind of like crowding around, or they're kind of taking an interest, very added their element. But it's helping, you know, you know me, like it's kind of why I hate our television that's not done well. Yeah. Because it's a lot of sitting around and talking— and it, it's not going anywhere. Right. Because we have 10 episodes to get to that. Yes. Here we have, let's see what the time is on this. This is two and a half minutes. Like it's, it's it, it moves. Get in late, get out early. Exactly. All right. So the key and gatekeeper meet up and they consummate of, the gozer arrival the gozer arrival and i i kind of like that you know and again as a kid you're like what are they doing up there on the top of the building well they're they're banging up there they're post coital yeah and that's i like how they set it up it was the unattainable uh mm-hmm. amorous reach for rick moranis to be with dana barrett and he could never be with her but then in this state as vince clortho keymaster gozer it's all she wants like yeah. i think it's set up well it's not just like Something out of left field.
0: That's... Okay, you just hit on another... Since we're doing screenwriting, yeah, essential component, yep. set it up and pay it off. Three times. Three times. You want to introduce your audience mm-hmm. to something three times so that when you pay it off later, it has that kind of weight or meaningful uh, purpose in the story. And if this is his pursuit of her, mm-hmm. then it's been three times. Mm-hmm. We've seen the initial hallway meeting. They've seen her tell him that, he has, that she has a date. Yes. And then we have this third time where... Uh, she basically invites him in mm-hmm. and they have this. So yep. set it up and pay it off. Yes. So here we go. Well done. That's really important because it takes the audience about three times mm-hmm. to get that subtext. It doesn't take the audience three times to get the full story. Yeah. But this is an underlying subplot. But yeah. here it is. Mm-hmm. That's what enriches the story and gives it volume mm-hmm. and makes it three-dimensional and not just
1: one linear Tangent story, not just something that's thrown at you and you just have to go with it because you're in the theater and you're like not going to walk out unless it's yourself. Like you leave movies all the time. <laughs> you know what just occurred to me though. Yeah. For all everybody that listened to the Endgame
0: podcast. Yes. This is exactly the opposite of our big criticism in Endgame. Yes. Which was those tangent, <clears throat> alternate dimension, time branch bullshit. Mm-hmm. None of those were set up mm-hmm. or paid off. Yeah. Right? Oh no, yeah. And that's why that's so frustrating. They're payoff through our
1: assumptions of how they would pay off, which that's bullshit. That's
0: that's just lazy writing. Yeah. Setting it up three times and paying it off once mm-hmm. is paying attention mm-hmm. to full story through the writing process. Mm-hmm. And that is no small feat because you can't just have some obscure event that has nothing to do with the story the setup has to occur in the context of the workings of a and b in story mechanisms and i think we're
1: getting a lot of that in this film the Lewis Tully dana barrett bit the crossing of the streams the overrunning uh paranormal activity in new york city like they're setting up all these things that are going to kind of be at play here in our our final act yeah So, the Gusbusters get out, the mayor wants to talk to them, everything's gone to shit in New York City. Like, it's always like that. Like, poor New York. Like, race one up to New York because every Godzilla, this, Independence Day, man, they just, they've had it rough. These men are consummate snowball artists.
3: They use sense and nerve gases to induce hallucinations.
1: People think they're seeing
3: ghosts. And they call these bozos who conveniently show up to deal with the problem with a fake electronic light show. Everything was fine with our system until the power grid was shut off
1: by Dickless here.
3: They caused an explosion. Is this true? Yes, it's true. This man has no dick.
1: So they're here talking with the mayor. Walter Peck's trying to like speak his piece of like, they've started a a major environmental this and that. And they're like, everything was going fine here until Dickless over here shut off the power grid. Is that true? Yes, it's true. This man has no dick. (laughs) Bill Murray's best line in the whole thing. It's a slam dunk setup. But, you know, now this is when that Winston moment comes into play. And the mayor has no other choice but to... Look, we're out of our element. The police, the National Guard, the army, they can't deal with this the way you can. You're the expert, so we have to call upon you. So it's this is another kind of second call to action where it's almost the redemption, redemption element of the story.
0: Everything that the heroes have accomplished <laughs> to get to the reversal. Yeah. Is then forced to be put into play mm-hmm. to accomplish this greater evil that's coming. This so is, like all of that's almost
1: practiced
0: yeah. up to the second act reversal. This
1: is that moment too. This is a great example. Rocky for Rocky at the top of the mountain going, Drago! Because mm-hmm. now he's ready for his rematch. Right. Like this is his second chance. Exactly. Yeah. So
0: it's time to get the Ghostbusters out and let them go do their thing. Mm-hmm. So they show up to that... Hotel? The,
1: the It's a, like a, an apartment building. The
0: apartment building, mm-hmm. sorry. Yep. And the crowd's waiting and they're met with adulation and applause and cheers. And no sooner do they pull up than their car falls into like a, a sink- hole, a, a sinkhole, sinkhole yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: One hour and 18 minutes in. Okay, yeah. so we're
0: moving really good time. Yeah, here. this is perfect. Okay, of course they survive because that would be the worst ending in the history of film if mm-hmm. that was just curtains at the end of point. Yeah, okay. and we want the showdown. Okay, so then let's do these last three points. Crisis conflict resolution. Mm -hmm. Okay, so defined crisis is here it is, the uh, penultimate moment between good and evil. Okay. Conflict is the actual, I'm not saying fisticuffs, but let's
1: just say fisticuffs between protagonists. We've used that word like so often in these podcasts, like we need to sneak it in like every episode. Fisticuffs? So they're going to get into a fisticuffs. (laughs) Okay. Yeah.
0: And then. Crisis, conflict, resolution. The ultimate resolution. Is what happens at the end. And then you get closure at the end, which is how you finish the film. Yes. So we are at that point now. Mm -hmm. So here it is, crisis. Here's the apartment complex. This thing that's trying to finish off everybody. It looks like hell. (laughs) Is upstairs. Yeah. So let's go. Now, if you take the Ghostbusters pre-Slimer. Yeah. And have them ascend the apartment complex. They will fail. Compared to these Ghostbusters. Mm -hmm. At least they have a fighting chance now. Mm -hmm. Okay, so... Then, per that definition, the script has succeeded mm-hmm. in allowing us to see that there's been growth yeah. in their quote unquote super abilities. Yeah.
1: Their unique traits. Mm-hmm. Okay, go. Excellent. So then we're gonna get you know, the, the the showdown that we've been waiting for. They reach the top of the Earthwind and Fire album cover <laughs> on the top. I swear to God, it that's what it looks like. We had that growing up on on vinyl, and that's awesome. and so that's like the stairs, and this thing comes out, and it's Gozer the Gozerian, and like that Gozer was supposed to be a man, or he's like it's whatever it wants to be, and it's a force to be reckoned with. And I think it's at this point, you know, where they're they're careful with how they put the comedy in there. They're ready to take on this Sumerian god, and it, they're ill-prepared. Like, this, kind of frightening. I think you and I would maybe be a little hesitant to kind of just jump right in. And like, she's got to go through us. Go get her, Ray. <laughs> go get her. Me? Yeah. And then we get the whole, are you a god bit? And no. And she lets them have it. And then, like, we get, like, that, that moment. That kind of heroic moment that we've you know we been building for. Like, this chick is toast. It's stick. Hold it. Heat him up. Smoke it. Make it hard. Ready. Like... That's awesome. Yeah. Like, that's great. And then they, they they let him have it. And then she kind of, they neutralize it. A total plutonic reversal. <laughs> I know this movie way too much. Yeah, no kidding. But, yeah, she kind of disappears and then kind of gives them the ultimatum. Like, I'm not the final form that I'll take. The traveler yeah. is coming. Yeah, choose and perish. Like, if we think of J. Edgar Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover will come and destroy us. So, blank your minds. And every time I watch this, I'm like... This is impossible because how do you not think of like the first thing that pops? How do you blank your mind from think of just like an alligator or like right. Michael Myers <laughs> to come and destroy us? I would totally pull a Ray and I'd pull in like the most ungodly thing onto my city.
0: Yeah, thank God Ray is the one that decides with their fate because mm-hmm. had it been one of the other ones or you or I, mm-hmm. there'd be no chance. But he chooses mm-hmm. or his mind chooses for him. Yeah. The Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay yeah so a giant marshmallow man is coming through the streets of new
1: york mm-hmm. to essentially godzilla yeah but let's talk to just like the image of this of mr stay puffed is that's iconic in its own right it's as part of the legacy of this film as the the ghost logo or the proton packs or the ecto-1 like you remember mr stay puffed
0: right yeah He's kind of got a smile when he's crushing people in the streets, but you know what I really like about him Mm. is when he starts to ascend the building to get them and they blast him with the proton packs and the lasers is that face that he has. Mm. He's got this grimace on his face, this chagrin. Almost kind of scary. Yeah. You know, he's not the happy, smiley, Mm -hmm. squashing people underneath his marshmallow feet. Mm -hmm. He means business. Yeah. And okay, well, it's real simple. It's a marshmallow. Let's just cook this guy. Yeah. And they do, and then he basically reverses the flames and blows them at him and
1: essentially almost roasts them. Again, the the, the, the conflict, they're making it, it's getting worse and worse the more that it progresses. So now they got this gigantic ma- mammoth marshmallow man who's burning the building that they're on, and they have no way to defeat it. But there is a way, but there's kind of an end game attached to it, which is we cross the streams and reverse the flow of energy of the gate that's been opened. Set up. And
0: paid off. We've already talked about don't Mm -hmm. cross the streams. Yes. So we know that just... Oh,
2: right?
1: Yeah, if this just flew in at the last second, we'd probably all be like, what the fuck? Like What the hell is he talking about? Exactly. It's been set up, which films... A lot of films today, like, take this knowledge you learn in this podcast and go watch whatever new movie's coming out in the next two months. Guarantee you're going to just be like, well, I didn't see any of that. And we just... uh, I think we're just expected to expect a lot of things. And I think that's maybe why I like twenty percent of movies i see in the calendar year i probably would agree with that because a lot of them can't like do it like this and it's like you don't get a pass for lazy writing just because you've been given a 200 million dollar budget i'm sorry well if you put a shiny picture around
0: it the box office might speak differently Mm -hmm. unfortunately you and i don't
1: but here's the difference too matt is i think a lot of those films like i'll just pick like aladdin remake whatever that film's not going to have the legacy and the aging that a film like this does. 35 years later, look, Matt, this came in the mail today. It's a new 4K steelbook of Ghostbusters 1 and 2. We're not going to get this on the Aladdin remake 35th anniversary. No. There's a difference between the quality and the work that went into putting this shit out 30 years ago. Right. So...
0: Yeah, again... The, yeah, let they, me...
1: I'll, <laughs> I'll get off my soapbox. No, and, no. It's, it's,
0: it's, again, it's worth saying, yeah. this movie... Succeeds because Reitman and Columbia Mm -hmm. took a chance on a brand new property. Mm -hmm. And that just doesn't happen unless it's from one of four or five actors who can get greenlit, get things greenlit just because they want to do it. Yeah. Or some directors, like a
1: Spielberg. We Mm -hmm. talked about him last week. I even wonder with him right now. Mm -hmm.
0: Sure. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, so...
1: The we proton get, beams are crossed. We close the gate, the thing explodes, Mr. Stave Puff is eviscerated, and we're kind of left with wreckage on the top here. So we're kind of wondering who's left, what's what, and we kind of think it's not gonna end so well. Like, smells like burnt dog hair, and like we, we kind of don't see the shreds of Vince Clortho and, and Zool, Dana and, and Louis Tully. But out of the wreckage, we kind of we 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 get that. We get the resolution of the story now. We've defeated Gozer. We've closed the portal. We still have to kind of deal with the rest of the paranormal BS that's happening on New York. But we've saved the day for now. Yeah, And we've saved our two other characters who were taken from us. So we get to the, the final little bit. I called it winning the day to fade out of the movie. Mm-hmm. On a screenplay, you have a fade in and a fade out. Our fade out, We this is one hour 38 minutes. We fade out at... 1 hour 40 minutes and 35 seconds like it's a perfect length for a film like this mm-hmm. like a lot uh, less is more but there's a lot in this movie it's not like they cut corners it's just everything i think has a purpose there's not dead weight in there dead scenes that are just kind of like idling our time till we get to the the Thanos moment or whatever
0: crisis conflict resolution all boxes have been checked now we get closure mm-hmm. seems like bill murray and or uh Spangler and Dana are going to be together and everybody is going to live happily ever after and we fade out to a celebration of the Ghostbusters and their greatness. And at this point, no one is left wondering, I wonder what happened about. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think this movie had the intention of being franchised. Yeah. And you can tell because what followed
1: was not good. And Ghostbusters 2, which as a kid, I actually kind of liked that more. Maybe it was the slime and I thought that was cool. But in retrospect, when you go back, you can kind of see why this one's infinitely better.
0: The movie's, fi- the story's over. It's yeah. finished. Mm-hmm. They told a complete story mm-hmm. beginning, middle, and end. Mm-hmm. And I think it was done in a fairly entertaining way and screenwriting wise. It checks the boxes that we're used to. And the reason we have these boxes and these beats yeah. is, and th- this works all the time. Yeah. If you say to someone, mm-hmm. let me tell you a story, you can see their demeanor change immediately. Yeah. There's something about us that's hardwired for story, mm-hmm. whether it's entertainment or history or human conditioning. I'm not exactly sure, but let me tell you a story and you have the room. So because that exists in us, we're familiar with that. And we look for those moments in the story that become the beats in the script. Mm-hmm. And that's what is necessary. Yeah. You can break the rules sometimes. Yeah. But mostly you can't. Yeah. That's what's necessary for your story listener to feel sated when the story
1: is completed. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're at right now. Right. All right. Copy. So let's have just a little review of our rating system. We have gut. Well, you know, the 3 $4 liquor that you're going to get, a call a call liquor, single barrel, and top shelf. So, Matt, where are you with Ghostbusters? I think we're going to go through a first. Sure. On Rye today. Yeah, that's fine. I hadn't seen
0: this movie in quite some time. Mm-hmm. We burned it this afternoon. Jesse, it was really, really tough for me to get through. <laughs> Had it not been for the podcast, I probably would have said, I'm out. Yeah. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Here's a couple things that I know that are unique to me and probably not to most of our listening audience. Yeah, I'm not a huge Bill Murray fan. Okay, I'm even a less Dan Aykroyd fan.
1: Yeah, eeeh, shit. And then we're in the '80s, and man, we're. (laughs) i you
0: know, Bill Murray's most acclaimed work is *Lost in Translation*. I fucking think that's one of the ten worst,
1: most overrated films of all time. I don't like that movie either. Oh my god, but I like his. I like his the comedy films he was in *Caddyshack*, *Stripes*. This one, I can
0: take *Stripes*. I. I find his character to be the most annoying and catty. I I don't. What about Bob is unwatchable for me? (laughs) I guess Groundhog Day is okay. Okay. My list is even shorter, except for Gross Point Blank. When it comes to Dan Aykroyd, okay, I hate the fucking Blues Brothers. Yeah, it's awful. I hate it.
1: So there's two strikes right off the bat because it is. Were you not big on these guys on SNL too? Like when they were kind of on or? Uh, well. Bill Murray on SNL wasn't
0: really a thing. Brian Doyle Murray was, but Bill Murray didn't have a full run on. I think he uh, was on like a year. It was quick, maybe. Yeah. Um, Dan Aykroyd is okay. Jumble, you know, back then that was John Belushi and Eddie, Eddie Murphy's vehicle yeah. for sure. Super basomatic, Jane, you ignorant
1: slut. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, I'm just asking. Yeah. Um.
0: So that's a problem. Mm-hmm. As a kid, mm-hmm. there were two movies. of the second one is going to kill you too. There are two movies that, when I was growing up, that yeah. everybody liked, and I just could—I didn't hate them, but I just couldn't get there the same way that everybody else did. This was one, and the other one—please don't throw anything at me—was the original Batman.
1: Oh, I know, I know, I know. I'm sorry,
0: I know. I just don't think Jack Nicholson is a good. Jo- I, there's and here's the same thing in both of them. Sure, sure. There's not enough ghost or Batman yeah. in either one of those. Yeah. That being said. It's a superb script. Yeah. But if my favorite character in the movie is Rick Moranis, yeah. the movie's a miss.
1: Sure. Yeah.
0: I don't own this movie. I watched it. Like I had early HBO when I was growing up. Yeah, yeah. And this was in heavy circulation. Yeah. And we would watch it. Mm-hmm. And I could just grinding through it because there was nothing else on. Okay. So all that being said. Sure. Yeah. Man, it's call minus. It might be well plus for me. If I never see this movie again, it will be too soon. I want no more part of any Ghostbusters. (laughs) I still love the song. Yeah, sure. It holds a a nice place of nostalgia for me. Yeah. But for the same reasons that I really like The Hustler as it still holds today. Yeah. This one doesn't. And not because of the claymation dogs.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't know, Jesse. Sure, it, it, this movie has not aged well. For Th- that's me. fair. Minors. You know, I think when you see films as a kid, you know they they age on you in different ways, and or you see them at like, it's hard because I kind of have a film like that too. Growing up, you know, two thousand four, Napoleon Dynamite. I cannot get on board with people with that film either. Okay, I don't understand why people think it's funny. I think <laughs> it's kind of stupid. Yeah, kind of the same thing. Like, yeah. it, I think it's just kind of like. Maybe your age or just like it takes on like a life of its own and you just can't see your window into it. I totally understand that with batman you know i might i take offense to that my i think my soul just kind of i know i'm
0: sorry i shouldn't have said that i wasn't meaning no but
1: that's not a shot to you i just no yeah that i i never i I didn't dislike that movie we should do batman on on the show just because we have two interesting perspectives on it
0: that might be good
1: and i'm a i'm a batman guy but you know i i'm I'm an interesting fellow myself with my film watching because i ate that shit up as a kid and in retrospect when i watch it i'm like Man, that's kind of like there's not a lot going on in that movie, but right. like, I still, I there's stuff in there that I like. I do like Ghostbusters for me has a little bit of that. Whereas sure.
0: Batman's in that movie for like 18 minutes. Yeah,
1: you want more of the ghost busting and less of the like world building. Whereas where I'm gonna come in on my rating, like this, this is I think this is a pretty great film and like you know yeah. the 80s is an interesting genre. We've spoken on it and I know it's not necessarily your favorite just because of how you know overplayed it in nostalgia Ugh. we're with it now saturation stranger things and whatever yep. which but i like that i like that kind of stuff probably because i didn't grow up in the 80s yeah i'm a child of the 80s but i'm not i'm more a child of the 90s and jesus christ like what the hell happened in that decade see because i love that decade of film yeah but like it as a kid like my nostalgia with that is different it's steeped in like kid films and animation and and larger films. You got more of the indie film movement out of it. And I've grown to respect that as I get older, but I kind of get that with the eighties. I'm able to look back at that decade and look at the Goonies and the Ghostbusters back to the future, all three Indiana Jones, the star Wars trilogy And then as I got older, I found I discovered Aliens and RoboCop and Predator and the Terminator. And I'm just like, Jesus Christ, Matt, you were spoiled (laughs) and you didn't respect it. But this is nearly top. it's like it's teetering on top shelf single barrel for me. I almost want to include it like in my all time top 10. But, you know, it is, you know, there's some other stuff that has to sneak in there. I think this is a pretty great film. It's pretty, per- we, you know, we sung the praises of this. This is the reason why I chose personally this film was, you know, I, you know, got a degree in, in, in film theory, filmmaking, and the film they just shoved down your throat is Citizen Kane. And I love that film. I love Orson Welles. Like, talk about him another day. But do you love that film? I do because I, I, it's important. And it's, again, it's not for everybody, but I understand why they teach it to you. But if I had my way and my day and got to teach my own class, I would tell you story structure through this film. I would do The Apartment, but okay, I would make a case for this over over Citizen Kane too. Sure, yeah. Like, I think it hits all the same points in a much more interesting way. And again, blending comedy and horror is difficult to do. Sure. But I think you get some memorable characters, and I cannot praise the world building enough for everything that Star Wars gets just like praised for, with the lightsabers and the Force and the dark side and the Empire and the Rebels and the X-wings and the Death Star and whatever, I love all that. I love a, uh, I love it to death. But this film does kind of the same thing in its own way. Proton packs, ghosts, uh, nuclear accelerators, Gozer, Zool, Vince Clortho, and. I'm telling you, go to the movies the next two weeks, you're not going to see that. You're getting a sequel to Spider-Man, you're getting a Lion King remake, you're getting a Toy Story 4, you're not getting a film that's going to build the world for you the way that these films did in the 80s. The last film that I, honest, honest to God, that was a big summer release that did this was 2010 and it was Inception. Dream thievery heist film. Like, we don't get it often enough. Unless you're a uh, Nolan, a Fincher, a Spielberg, a Tarantino, you don't have carte blanche to create stories like this where in the 80s they were more willing to take a chance. And you said it earlier. And if you could take anything away from this podcast is to take a chance on original ideas because you never know what's hiding in there. This uh, this
0: movie. Every single one of those movies that you listed in the 80s that you love mm-hmm. is an independent spec script. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, maybe there might be one or two that's adapted in there. Yeah. But you didn't do Lethal Weapon or Die Hard either.
1: Yeah, I like that. Those, scr- those are all written for the screen. Yeah. Lethal Weapon, Die Hard, Poltergeist. You know, Spielberg had such E.T. as much as I hated that. That's an original idea. Yeah, based on, on, on kind of nothing. Yeah. <laughs> And and the craziest thing about the whole Ghostbusters legacy and it spawned a whole media franchise, a sequel, a reboot, a video game, cartoon. We're, we're getting a new Ghostbusters film next year uh-huh. that's set in this original universe, directed by Ivan Reitman's son Jason Reitman. Yep. Like it's still alive. And did he write it too? What this new one? Yeah. I I think the son did. Yeah. Yeah. He wants to kind of. I think that's cool. Carry on, Dad's legacy. That's awesome. Uh. The craziest thing about this whole story was Ghostbusters made a shit ton of money in 1984. And I actually have an idea for us for our, our the final film in this cask of of a thing we can do for our flight. And I'll, I'm going to save that. Okay. But the highest grossing film of 1984 wasn't Ghostbusters. It was Beverly Hills Cop. Yep. Which that just blows my mind. I like Beverly Hills Cop, but not as much as Ghostbusters. Also spec screenplay. I don't know how that like spoke to the collective consciousness of because if you like total up the totals and what it would make today it's obscene and that's just a simple movie of a Detroit police officer who goes to Hollywood it's a good year nineteen eight Temple of Doom Gremlins yep yeah Yeah, Beverly Hills Cop is just a fish out of water. Exactly. we would talk about that another day. We will. So there's my answer for that. So let's wrap up with a nightcap. Pour a little bit more of the Grange Stone here. It's pretty good, huh? It is. I really have. We put a dent in this bottle too, haven't we? There we go. There we go. (laughs) Yep. So let's wrap up with a nightcap and talking about, you know, I almost considered discussing, you know, like... Uh, a weapon or a gadget like the coolest gadget in film but let's talk about the vehicle today this film has the ecto-1 we discussed it earlier the hearse this kind of mechanized thing that houses their proton packs that's a cool vehicle but what's your favorite film vehicle
0: this was a fun one there's three or four that came into them, so i'll do the ones that were close and didn't make it and then i'll give you the real one so some that were in play is the bullet car steve mcqueen iconic Eleanor from Gone in 60 Seconds. Mm. John Cusack's uh, car in um, Better Off Dead. Mm. Burt Reynolds, Smokey, and the Bandit. Mm. But the one that's going to beat all of those yeah. is... It's funny. This has come up three times in this podcast today. Okay. Is John Wick's 1969...
2: Oh, yeah. Is it
0: Dodge? Yeah. Man. That car and what it means to him in that film and how he use it uses it is... To me, the car that if I could have one from a movie, yeah. it would be that one. I love the Tumblr from Batman. Mm-hmm. And there's some other, like all the stuff that I just mentioned, yeah. but it's that one.
1: That's cool too. And if you want to talk screenwriting terms with John Wick's car, his car and the stealing of it is incredible case the inciting incident of that film exactly it's literally it sets him on this path of rampage that has propelled an entire franchise yeah so yep that's an awesome choice and it and it and it keeps and it keeps showing up which is great i'm surprised you didn't pick a few of the things that were kind of floating around there that's kind of it that's i i like your pick it's bold uh you left a delorean on the table from back to the future which a shitty car in real life but (laughs) expertly masterfully used in that film I, I almost wanted to throw TV into this with the uh, Adam West 66 Batman Batmobile because I think if you could pick any of them out of a lineup, it's going to be that one.
0: Well, like, if you're doing TV, I would put the General Lee from the Dukes of Hazzard. The A Teams van. like, sure. There's
1: so many things, but I, a vehicle, man, could have been future, too. I'm surprised you didn't pick the Millennium Falcon. But, you know, if I had to pick any film vehicle and it's, you know, personal preference. I'm a James Bond guy, but if I can only pick one of those, it's the Aston Martin DB5 from Goldfinger. It's a film, you know, Goldfinger's the prototype bond film. It's yeah. the it, from Russia with love that point by point is a better movie. Goldfinger created the Bond Mythos, the theme song, the gadgets, the bond multiple bond girls, the the, the, the multiple bond villains, and the car. The car that's going to propel him, and he used to, he drove a Bentley, and he drove a Bentley in the books, and kind of like these kind of old fashioned cars. <laughs> in Goldfinger, he got this Aston Martin, which this six figure car, but it could do the coolest things imaginable: oil slick, machine yeah. guns, yeah. ejector seat, bulletproof, uh, you know glass. And Bond had some cool cars throughout the years, but I don't know if there's a more iconic and more recognizable car, you know, from that kind of genre. So
0: I thought you were gonna go with Vanishing Point, Point. 1970
1: were, Dodge Challenger, white Dodge Challenger from Vanishing Point. But I yeah. think it's used better though in Death Proof with ship's mast on the Death Proof. Yeah, yeah, I thought about that one. You know, film-wise, you know, we've been spoiled with some pretty iconic vehicles, and you know the the way they've been used. You know, you could even kind of make a case for the shit that was used in Mad Max Fury, oh, yeah. Fury Road. Like those are kind of like Frankenstein vehicles of sorts, but. Yeah. Interesting interesting to say the least. Can I ask you questions since you brought it up? Go ahead. When you said vehicle, I had I didn't even consider
0: like any s- space. Any moving thing. So if you had your choice between the Millennium Falcon and Slave One, would you still take the Millennium Falcon?
1: Uh yeah. Man, really? Maybe Let's- I'm
0: just a hopeless Boba, Fett, Boba Fett, Fett romantic. Well, I yeah. hope
1: that new TV show on Disney Plus does it for you, The Mandalorian. Well, oh, I'm sure it won't, but okay. <laughs> I'm sure, i sure hope it does. The Millennium Falcon just breathes awesome. It's it's everything you want, and it just epitomizes the character of Han Solo, which was bastardized in the Solo film, which we don't need to talk about. I have an idea. Yeah. This summer, yeah. let's
0: you and me and our families go to Disneyland and go see that Millennium
1: Falcon ride. Yeah, and we'll ride it for real. There we go. Booked. Done. Signed, sealed, delivered. Excellent. So, uh, this has been great. I hope you've learned a lot about screenplay writing, screen crafting. You know what, Matt? We're going to have to come back to this uh, a few more times because Ghostbusters isn't the only one that does this expertly. Like, we'll help you break other films down, like, by this process to kind of you, like, look at films differently. And, you know, in school, too, uh, the other idea that this was shown to me, you mentioned Joseph Campbell and the, the journey of the hero was through hamlet actually oh sure because hamlet hits all the beats too in the exact same way which i think speaks to how that's hardwired into us because i'm william shakespeare is a master
0: storyteller yeah do you think he knew about the beats back then he
1: didn't no i kind of can't stand the guy though that's a story for another day but yeah, wow really <laughs> yeah it's it's a long story it involves yeah let's not get into that Um, but yeah, that was the one that was taught to me. It was Hamlet. Interesting. And then in a film theory class, it was Citizen Kane. You had some good film theory teachers in your upbringing. I sure did. But then I saw Ghostbusters as an adult. And again, if you haven't seen this in a while, you know, Matt had some hard feelings for it. But on the surface, as a kid, you don't get the jokes that you get as an adult. Right. You don't get that they had sex on top of the thing. You don't get the like this man. Like there's certain things that just go over your head as a kid because you're just there for the ghostbusting so revisit it I think you'll you're in for some chuckles along the way so excellent so next week we're going to continue on the summer tentpole hall of fame we talked about this film a little bit last week but man if like one of the five most seminal perfect films I'm already like rating the film already but Jesus Christ I can't wait to talk about it man Matt. if adventure has a name it must be Indiana Jones On tap for next week, we have Raiders of the Lost Ark from 1981, Steven Spielberg at the height of his powers, delivering us one of cinema's greatest film heroes, expertly played by Harrison Ford. We talked about a little bit last week. I can't wait to get in the weeds with this film and explain why I love it so much and why it gets me all like worked up inside. But, man, I'm excited to talk about this.
0: And with that, as much as we're going to love the film, we have a little bit of a surprise next week, too. So we'll look forward, and we won't let the cat out of the bag. But we're going to try something a little different next week. Sure. So we'll see how that plays out. I'm excited for that. So cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse
1: we got to get going. i got to go bust some ghosts. After I'm done, I'm going to go find Rick Moranis, and we're going to play a game of Parcheesi.
0: It's about time. That poor guy's been dancing with that tame, tall blonde girl for like 35 years. He needs a break, man. (laughs) Excellent.
1: God bless Rick Moranis. God bless Rick Moranis. I I love him. But you know what? Thank you to the listeners and the followers and the subscribers. You know, the following thus far is like totally shocked Matt and I. I mean, for God's sakes, you know, uh, the real John Cusack actually liked one of our photos on Instagram last night. And not a lot of people get to say that.
0: And to that, let's bring this up right now, Jesse. Mm -hmm. If this isn't your... Uh, choice when it comes to casks we have several other archives. maybe you can give the listeners a bit of what's archived
1: in the past we have done the Easter 177 trilogy with Unbreakable Split and Glass we have done Film Noir uh, serenity like you got to do serenity. <laughs> got to do serenity. <laughs> Double indemnity and 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 uh, basic instinct. We've done science fiction, alien, Terminator, RoboCop. We've done Stephen King. Stephen King was badass. I can't wait to come back to the guy. That was fun. Carrie, Pet Cemetery, The Mist. Uh, the Mist is a lot of fun. And the superheroes. We like we totally like tackled that Shazam, Spider Man, The Amazing Spider Man Two, End Game. You know, we're, Matt and I are gonna deviate from. You know, popularity on occasion, like just because like it's out and about, it doesn't mean we're going to necessarily cover it and we're going to jump to the past. We're going to jump to the future and, you know, we're going to tackle some classic film too.
0: Jesse mentioned some of the former podcasts. Another one is love is spelled with an X. Mm -hmm. That's the one that John Cusack responded to. That Mm -hmm. was 500 days of summer, the graduate and high fidelity, his
1: specific movie. Yep. Uh, I've really had a blast doing that one as well. I did too. And th- those are a lot of films that people haven't seen. And I think one of mine and Matt's goals in this podcast venture, which has been a blast so far, is to maybe open the door to some films you haven't seen. You know, see the film before you listen. See it after you listen. You know, I think you're going to find a lot to enjoy about the entire experience. If If Matt and I, out of this whole thing, can just get you to... Have seen a film for the first time, I will chalk that up as a win. So excellent everybody. Cheers to you all. Cheers we'll, to you all. We'll see you next week.
0: Everybody, have a great week. We'll see you in the dark.
1: Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or leave us an email at rice productions at gmail.com ghostbusters is property of columbia delphi productions black rhino and columbia pictures and no copyright infringement is intended until next time cheers
0: all right
3: this chick is toast Oh! Heat him up! Closer! Big apart! Ready! Let's show this prehistoric bitch how we do things downtown.